Hello and welcome to this week's Key Voices, conversations with folk in and around education. I'm Caroline Doherty. Thank you to all the school staff listening. The work you do has never been more important to the communities you serve. Before we begin, just like to remind listeners that this podcast is an opportunity to open up debate and discussion around issues. The views my guests and I are about to express are not the view of the key. For in-depth authoritative articles on the latest issues in education, please check out thekeysupport.com. Right, so this week's guest is Dr Becky Allen. Becky is co-founder and chief analyst at TeacherTap. She is also professor of education at the University of Brighton and an honorary research fellow at the University of Oxford. And uh, prior to TeacherTap, she also set up and ran Education Data Lab. Becky's work is really grounded in the sector, and she spends her time talking to people involved in running our schools, analysing data on pupils and teachers, and uh, looking after her children in Sussex. We'll we'll come on to uh, homeschooling in a bit. One of Becky's best-known publications is The Teacher Gap, which she wrote with Sam Sims, and we're going to talk a little bit about that book and the various things that Becky and the team at TeacherTap are learning about the impact of coronavirus on on schools, and I'm sure a few other things as well. So welcome, Becky. Thank you very much for inviting me. Uh, Great. So for anyone listening who hasn't read the book, can you briefly explain what you actually mean by the teacher gap? Sure. Well, Sam Sims and I wrote The Teacher Gap when we were working at Education Data Lab. Um, We're both heavily quantitative researchers and we're both um, economists by training. And we wanted to write write this book to really introduce the readers to this enormous explosion that there'd been in research um, and principally quantitative research on teachers, teacher careers, teacher motivations and really the development of teaching practice because we really felt that there was this gap in the policy narrative around teachers. And in the book, we describe this gap in three different ways. The first way is the disparity about what we know about the importance of teachers and and how we treat them every day um, in their jobs. The second part of the gap is the gap just between the quantity of teachers that we need and the number that we have. And then finally, the difference in the quality of teachers that we currently have and the quality of teachers that we want. Um, And so we explore all of these ideas in the book. And yeah, um, one of the things that you advocate kind of strongly um, in the book as a a result of that exploration um, is a much longer period of, of teacher training. Actually, and can you tell me a bit more about how you would see that that working in in practice, and what the the barriers are that exist to adopting that approach? Yeah, I mean, what we wanted to try and do is break the cycle that we think we have in the UK, um, where trainees are not given adequate time to prepare for what is ultimately a very complex job teaching. Um, And as a result, they kind of get chewed up by schools with enormous demands that are completely out of proportion to the skills that they have at the time and the support that they're given in the classroom, where often they are teaching um, close to full time tables on their own. Um, And we think of this as the kind of sink or swim model. And unfortunately, in the sink or swim model, about a third of teachers sink and they're out of the workforce um, from within the first five years or so. 
Um, and it's had consequences for us in England. So in England, we have one of the youngest and least experienced teacher workforces in the whole world. And simply having a large proportion of novice teachers in your schools at any point in time is a big problem. And it's a big problem because it has a huge impact on average teacher effectiveness. You see, one thing we know about teachers is that all of us as teachers were worse in our first year of teaching um, than we are subsequently in the um, years of our career. So if you're trying to run a schooling system where you're making a greater reliance on novice teachers than other countries in the world, and you're doing that because you're sustaining very high dropout rates and therefore a very high need to train, you're going to have a problem with teacher quality. And then when we look at like what does the model look like at the moment of teacher training, well, regardless of what the model is, whether it's Teach First or PGCE, they all have one thing in common, which is that they're hopelessly front loaded in terms of the information we try to impart on teachers. And then there's relatively little integration between the school based practice and that information that we've imparted. And moreover, I think there's some dysfunction in the market that we have trainees who are unable to understand what a good training experience is ex ante before they mm. start training and unable to select a good place to train. And then also just hold the schools and institutions that they're working with to an account to ensure that it's delivered. And so within the book, what we describe is, well, we just say we have to replace this front loaded sink or swim model with something different, with a longer thinner approach that takes account of the reality of how we learn, which is the slow sequential way in which we can become teachers and develop skills. And so we say, well, initial teacher training has to take place over two years and not one year. But moreover, there has to be something sustained taking place after that. We think that having a model that takes um, an extra on top of that three or more years to become a master in teaching is, is a realistic model. And in the book, and I guess this becomes the controversial part, we describe a model where a teacher is connected to one school from the start of training in their year one, and then a second school in year two, rather than being connected to a university initially. And the university still will play a role, but alongside other providers and delivering discrete training elements so what we're describing i think is more like the school direct relationship and i think it has certain advantages um, it gives the trainees proper connections to schools and to students in a way that a pgce doesn't um, and it also ensures a greater connection between what is being taught and um, the practice that's able to take place and we suggest well what's realistic well perhaps a teacher should be asked to teach a one-third timetable in year two and a two-thirds timetable in oh, sorry a one-third timetable in year one mm. and a two-thirds timetable in year two and so that is less than a teach firster would be teaching and it's certainly less than a pgce student would be teaching we don't think our model is particularly controversial the model we describe i mean it's how we train doctors in this country and it's actually how teacher training works in many of our European neighbours and in large parts of the world. Um, but, you know, it's the, there are significant barriers to doing it, um, of which the largest is, of course, money. And it's not just money for this extended training period. We also think you need to pay schools properly to want to train as many trainees as possible. 
And I think you want to do that because you actually want to restrict access to trainees to ensure that trainees are going into schools that have demonstrated they can provide a good training experience. And we need to train up teachers. Teachers have themselves very little training in how to become good mentors and coaches. And that has to be an important element in how to, how to help them support initial teachers. Um, but there are, you know, potentially cost savings involved. Um, the idea of having a teacher spend a whole academic year in one school during their training actually means they can be productive in that year. Mm. So if you know you've got a member of staff as a trainee on a one-third timetable, you can use them from day one. And that contrasts with a PGCE where um, teachers, uh, trainees come and go in placements but they can, they can never actually have a class of their own. Um, they always have to displace other teachers who, who then are observing them or having time off. Um, so there are, there are some cost savings involved. And of course, one of the goals is that we increase early career retention and therefore need to train fewer teachers as a result. The comparison between medical uh, uh, training and, and, and teacher training is, is a really interesting one in, in that way, in terms of the, the level of responsibility um, placed on, 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 on teachers very early in their, in their career. Yes, and I, but and I think there's some reasons for that. I mean, historically, teachers um, were isolated and they worked on their own in a room with no other adults in the room. Um, there were essentially no teaching assistants, for example, in the system. And so given that model, it's very hard to conceive of a way that we could um, allow novice teachers into the classroom for the first time in any other way, mm. because... We, because we couldn't compartmentalise part of the job and say, you just do this bit and not the other bits. Um, but having said that, and this isn't something we explored particularly in the book, given that we do have this teaching assistant um, job that exists now in the system, I think there probably are opportunities to think again about the role of a proper apprenticeship model. Mm. The proper apprenticeship model would be that teachers, teachers were working alongside um, trainees in the same space together and learning how to do elements of the job bit by bit. And I know that there's some teacher training providers who, who have been moving towards that kind of model. So I, I, I do think that that's an interesting model that we're only able to explore because we've changed the nature of the workforce in schools to allow multiple adults in the room and therefore, mm -hmm. and therefore trainees to experience the classroom without having to run the classroom. And move, moving on from that sort of early part of a, a teacher's career, there are also some really fascinating insights into what what spurs more experienced teachers to improve and what makes for effective CPD. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, I mean, so to get better at anything in life, you have to find the will to do it and then also the way to do it. And we really argue in the book that experienced teachers start to lose both of those things. And so, you know, the first question is really, why does our desire to get better at teaching tend to diminish as we get more experienced? And part of the answer is just, well, our imperative to improve actually declines as we gradually gain control of our classroom. So I think all teachers can remember what it's like to be a newly qualified teacher out of control in the classroom. And in those situations, and that's the sink or swim, you know, the imperative to get better and try new things is very, very high. 
but that starts to decline because because we gain control of our classroom teaching becomes manageable teaching becomes even enjoyable and so that kind of desperate need to get better slightly goes and then we have something else that's going on i think in terms of management processes or targets that focus on improving classroom instruction that are often quite absent in teaching and it's not because leaders don't care about it like of course they care mm. about improving classroom instruction but it's quite hard for them as leaders to figure out what to do about that and in part that's because teachers are isolated in the way that they work and so you don't have this constant oversight of managers who are able to watch what you're doing as you do in other industries but also because the very nature of classroom instruction because of its complexity it makes it really hard to measure and to codify in kind of targets so when we think about you know the nature of management in schools is often not focused very well on this kind of nuance of how we improve our classroom instruction and then sometimes we have this problem with motivation i guess which is that teachers have um, lost sight of kind of why it is that they want to get better at their job and that's something to do with the managerialism i think and the accountability in schools but this kind of loss of the will to get better at teaching is only half of it because you can really really want to get better at teaching and yet find that you can't and so the question is why on earth is it so hard for a teacher to figure out how to get better at teaching well you can only get better at teaching if you try out new things and when new teachers um, who are inexperienced try out new things they are able to get fantastic feedback on whether those things work or not because they've got the difference between maintaining control of their classroom or not maintaining control of their classroom and so they have this nice feedback loop that happens they try out something different it's a catastrophic failure or it's okay and they make a decision then how to adapt it and try it again or whether to throw it away as an idea when we become experienced teachers and we've basically got control of our classroom regardless of what happens suppose we try out something new in the classroom how on earth do we decide whether it was better or worse than the other way that we could have taught or the way that we used to teach our problem is we've got this kind of broken feedback adjustment loop and that's because learning is largely invisible um, it's very hard for us to work out the changes that we've managed to evoke in children's brains which is ultimately the job of teachers um, but not only that um, we actually find it hard to adjust our practice and persistently take on new ideas and do them repetitively and the reason why that happens in teaching is just because of the complexity of the nature of classroom instruction um, teachers have to make thousands of decisions every day about how to behave in the classroom and the only way it's possible to do that is to develop sets of habits we call them kind of automaticity and behaviors that mean that you don't have to think through every decision that you make thinking for every decision you make actually is cognitively incredibly demanding and it makes your teaching very unnatural and slow and and jumpy and um, experienced teachers don't have that because they have habits of the classroom and habits are essential to make teaching effective but they're also the things that stop us getting better at teaching because we have to disrupt habits and that's really really hard to do and so in terms of kind of what makes effective cpd well at least at the moment um, the field really points to 
one particular um, practice that's particularly effective in helping teachers improve, and it's sometimes called rubric-based coaching. So the rubric-based part means that the person who's doing the observing is actually looking for particular things happening in the classroom, and they've almost got like a tick list of areas that they can think about and work on with the teacher. And the deliberate practice part means that the coach and the teacher are working together to choose, deliberately choose an element of their practice, to decide to make some adjustments to how they teach, to practice them repeatedly in the classroom, and to get feedback from a coach on how they're working. Um, it's a relatively time intensive um, and expensive way of doing mm. training. Expensive because it tends to be one coach and one teacher working together, it's individualized. Intensive and sustained means it needs to happen over a period of time. And that's because you can't, you can't change a habit by just having a one-shot training event. Um, and it needs to be pretty context specific for that teacher. And that's why it's important that it's located within a classroom and, and observations taking place within a classroom. So at least at the moment, and particularly from the US, there are now dozens and dozens of randomized control trials coming out showing that this can be made to be an effective way to help um, teachers improve at teaching. And I'm sure you can appreciate that it's a million miles away from, I think, the norm of, of what we think of as the bread and butter of professional development, which is the one-shot inset day that takes place every so often. Mm, indeed. And what I really like about the book is you you're you're looking broadly at at, at policy making and 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 recommendations in in that realm, but you also give some really practical advice to school leaders about actions that they can take without waiting for policymakers to to catch on. Um, what would you particularly advise? school leaders to do to ensure that there are effective and and motivated teachers in their school? Well, I suppose starting with this question of motivation, in the book, we, we set out the evidence for a psychological theory called self-determination theory, which posits that teachers and schools need to feel a sense of autonomy in the sense that they're authors of their own lives a sense of competence, a sense that they are good at their job and they have a way to get better at their job, and a sense of connectedness with their teaching peers, that they're part of a bigger system. And so um, thinking about these three elements um, of teacher motivation, I think is the heart of thinking about management and how we manage teachers. And so, for example, we can think about these questions like, well, when we set teacher performance targets and appraisal, are we doing so in such a way that they foster a sense of autonomy? And a sense of autonomy is different to actually saying to teachers, you can do what you want to do. But it's talking about how can we have a dialogue with teachers where they get to the point where they feel that they have agency over the things that they're working on in their job. And then how do we help our teachers work out whether they are improving at their job? It's something we don't actually talk about sometimes enough in the performance management system. And then thinking about this question of connectedness, you know, teaching is teaching is a lonely job. Teachers are isolated from their teaching peers necessarily through the nature of the job. And just as managers, how do we know which of our teachers has a best friend, which of our teachers has a shoulder to cry on? But, but 
also for those teachers who want to seek out others who are interested in the same thing so perhaps work on things together within their school what are you doing as a manager to try and facilitate some of those things taking place so that's just thinking about teacher motivation and then thinking teacher expertise um we really think about one of the dilemmas we have i suppose is that specialization in something is something that really supports skill acquisition and it's something that's very important when we think about our inexperienced teachers in our school whether we're in a primary or secondary school we're perhaps thinking about our recently qualified or newly qualified teachers and asking ourselves like are we prioritizing them when we write the timetable or when we do the class allocation are we asking our NQT that we've just appointed for the first time which year group they would like to teach or what they taught during their PGCE, what modules or parts of courses did they teach um, so that we can assure we get some match to allow them to facilitate skill acquisition. And are we thinking carefully about the occasions on which we are allowing um, teachers um, within primary schools to teach multiple years um, at the start of their career so they're teaching the same year group again and again so that they can develop their skills within that before having to transfer those skills when they may be quite shaky to a new context and just thinking about the working environment you know is the working environment one that generally is supporting or hindering teachers to get better at their job and to what extent should we be structuring teaching um, so stru by structuring teaching, I'm saying like, to what extent do you and your school choose to have rules and routines that every teacher has to follow? Um, do you have a prescriptive behaviour policy or do you allow a certain amount of autonomy in the classroom around these things? And there's some real trade-offs and dilemmas around these, but in general, it's also true that structuring teaching is helpful for inexperienced teachers who really need that kind of structure. So thinking about um, whether you give autonomy to the way that you allow um, children to enter the classroom in the morning or at the start of a lesson, about the implementation of behaviour policies, about the way that homework's set and so on. Some of these structures are very helpful for inexperienced teachers and thinking about which of those need to be common to the school in order to support the inexperienced teachers and which you, you can allow experienced teachers to deviate from in a way that doesn't damage your inexperienced teachers. Um, and then, I mean, the big issue, at least at the time when we were writing the book was teacher workload. And so we have lots of recommendations in the book around that and thinking about why you have a long hours culture what kind of policies and workload inducing practices you still have that essentially are just relics they're policy relics of bygone ofsted frameworks or dfe advice that needs to go and in the book we propose this thing called the 8 to 4 30 experiment i love this so you they, we say you should be able to run this in your schools so the 8 to 4.30 experiment says you tell all of your staff, and of course you, you have to do this when schools are actually open, that the only working times are going to be 8 to 4.30. There'll be no work taken home. School servers will be switched off. You can't take books home. Um, you can't access emails, nothing else. And you say, we're going to run it, and we're going to run it for as long as we can bear, maybe three weeks or so. And then we're going to see what happens. And of course, it will be enormously stressful for many teachers who find that they need to work longer hours than that to survive. 
but they will adapt and they will slowly start doing things differently as a result. And then at the end of the experiment, we simply ask ourselves, what changed? What did we choose not to do? What compromises did we make? And how can we adapt our practice to actually make workload sustainable in the long run? And we say you have to do this. You can't just all sit down and look at your existing workload and say, what can we cut out? And the reason why you can't do that as a team is that you thought everything was important once. Mm. And it takes a massive hit to your own ego to admit that something you've asked your staff to do for the past five years actually probably isn't a good use of time and they could be doing something better with that time. Um, and so we say that's why you shouldn't try to start from where you are and cross out things on a list. Instead, you have to start from where we need to get to, which is that this is a job that's sustainable between the hours of 8 and 4.30. And we need to we need to force ourselves into that work, that world, and figure out how we can make it work. And I suppose to people and to heads who say, but, but, but it's not possible or it's not reasonable my response has always been that it has to be possible and the reason why it has to be possible despite having long holidays and everything else we have to be able to do this job between 8 and 4 30 is that teaching is a feminized profession for better or worse but not only that the kind of people who become teachers often become teachers because they happen to like children and that poses something of a problem because you see eventually most teachers choose to have some children of their own. And because they happen to like children, they also happen to be the kind of parents who want to see their own children. And so you force them into a trade-off where if this job is not sustainable between the hours of eight and 4.30, and you are asking them to work longer hours, they will have to seek employment elsewhere in order to do the thing that's ultimately fulfilling for them which is spend time with the children that they chose to have themselves and so it's this feminization of a profession that likes children and therefore wants to spend time with them is the reason why we can't pretend that we're investment bankers or lawyers that all are working these crazy hours fulfilling some kind of you know mission in our work because it's not sustainable it's only sustainable with young young teachers who don't have families and then they will leave and i think it will be interesting to see the the impact of um you know the current situation and 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 crisis where teachers who do have caring responsibilities of whatever stripe and young children of their own have have managed their their workload against the, the 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 parenting that they're doing and and worked out which things are the priority and and which things have have to give so it could be quite a fertile uh time for schools to to go through that um thought process when we do return to something even approaching normality uh difficult that's difficult absolutely right i mean lots of things are not happening at the moment that we held sacred to ed education. And after all of it, we will have to look carefully at which of these actually did, did turn out to be important and which didn't. And I think that's complicated actually. And I don't necessarily have like strong views and priors mm. around what particularly needs to go. Um, but to have lived through this long period of time where so much hasn't happened, mm. um, I think we can ask ourselves these challenging questions about how things should be done. And 
I'm just going to move on on now to con- consider that uh, recruitment and and retention, which which continues to be a critical issue for the for the profession. And TeacherTap have been doing some really fascinating polling on this lately. And recently, you had some data suggesting that nearly a quarter of of head teachers are actually thinking about leaving the profession. We've also heard positive reports uh, from from Teach Now that says a, a record number of people are expressing an interest in a in a teaching career. So really um, very opposing and interesting uh, pieces of data there. What are your predictions for the school workforce sort of as we come out of this crisis? We're living through a fascinating time um, and at TeacherTap, we've been doing some work with School Dash and with the Gatsby Foundation, looking in detail at what's going on in the teacher recruitment market. But let's just remember where we were, let's say, you know, two weeks before the crisis happened. Um, we were in the middle of an impending demographic storm taking place, at least in secondary schools, because we had the baby bulge uh, gradually. It was about to start appearing in secondary schools in a couple of years' time. It's now in upper junior schools. And that was creating problems in turn for primary schools, which right, were uh, emptying out and was creating some quite serious financial problems. But for the secondary schools, we've got this big increase in demand for teachers that's being... Um, pushed by this this baby bulge and then on the other side thinking about the supply of teachers well we've got another retirement bulge coming through really quite soon Um, and then when we think about um, the group of teachers who we often think about as being um, the mid-career group that perhaps might become head teachers themselves um, we think about that group um, who I'm kind of part of who are in their early 40s. These were lots of them teachers who entered the profession during the early 2000s recruitment crisis. And there's relatively few of them as a result, um, because we all graduated into a booming economy. So we had other things to do. So we were a tiny graduating cohort, because um, when we were born, there were not many of us. And then we graduated into an economic boom, and not many of us became teachers. And that's the group that we're relying on now to go into these senior management positions. So we've got some tricky things going on. And then finally, the last tricky thing going on is that when we think about the undergraduates who are completing their courses, we've got these tiny cohorts that are graduating over the next few years. And this matters a lot because actually career changes are not so important to teaching. The most important thing is just what is the size of the pool of 21, 22 year olds Mm. that you're trying to recruit from? Because still the majority of teachers are coming into the profession in their early 20s. So we've got all kinds of reasons to be quite worried about what's going on in the teacher labour market, except that we've had just had COVID happen, lockdown happen, and a massive uh, crisis in the economy. And so what do we know has happened? Well, we know from our data that the game of musical chairs that we play every year where somebody ahead retires and then they advertise and then a load of people apply and some senior leader somewhere gets the job and then their job is advertised and then somebody else moves up into their post and so on. And at some point at the bottom of the pile, you've got a set of people who are completing PGCEs who are looking for jobs and they get sucked in. That game completely dried up. Mm. Um, and so we know that we're we're facing a problem where we haven't had the set of moves happen that should have happened. 
Now, it's not necessarily a crisis in the sense that you could just have the game not being played and everybody just continues in September. Um, but what that might mean is that teachers find themselves in jobs that they don't necessarily want to be in because they didn't move when they were unhappy, because they didn't move even though they were moving house, because they didn't move schools um, and get a promotion when they actually wanted them. So the risk for us is what happens in January and do we end up with a disrupted academic year as the moves start to happen that should have been happening last year um, as, as the economy reopens. And then we've got another problem, which is because of all these movements didn't happen, we actually think there's a bit of a problem with NQTs finding jobs at the moment. And we think that's a bit of a problem because um, we're not quite sure how many teachers we've got at the moment, in the sense that we've got a set of teachers who need to be shielding, who may not be able to teach um, in the classroom in September. And we've got a, we've got teachers who haven't received letters to shield but feel that they have to be shielding we've got teachers who live in households with somebody they consider to be high risk naturally at teacher tag we found there was something like one in four teachers reported they're in one of those groups only two percent say that they are shielding themselves but we've got this much bigger group of teachers who feel that they're high risk or they're in a high risk household and so, you know, if heads had infinite money at the moment, they would just be going around mopping up NQTs just in case, right? So that they had a means of putting together a, a, a staff body in September. But they are not doing that, and really, unless the government intervenes. That's the only way that that can happen. Um, we've now, as, as I think, as you said, Teach Now said, you know, we've got, we've, we're entering a recession almost certainly and recessions always make things better for the teacher labor market so we can expect high applications of people into the junior posts in schools and that's fine but does that fix our head teacher problem and i think it's too early to say exactly what the head teacher problem is going to be um, we've been tracking the data on teacher anxiety and teacher burnout uh, during the downturn um, at, at teacher tap and there's just really really stark differences between people who are teachers and people who are head teachers um, and head teachers when we ask about your anxiety levels that you've experienced that day that were associated with work um, at their peaks these peak stress points you know like four in ten head teachers are experiencing very high anxiety levels and then when we ask about this thing that's kind of a more sustained issue, um, which is this feeling of burnout, um, three quarters of heads last week told us they were experiencing feelings of burnout, which is no surprise because they haven't had an Easter holiday and they didn't get a half term and they're dealing with really stressful administrative issues and decisions that they're having to make. And in fact, when we asked them whether they agreed with this statement, 12% um, did. And the statement is really sad, actually. It says, I feel completely burned out and I wonder if I can go on with this job. I'm at the point where I may need to make some changes or may need to seek some help. And so then when we ask them, you know, has the experience of COVID-19 and lockdown make, made it more or less likely that you will seek to reduce your hours or leave the profession altogether? One quarter of head teachers said, yes, I'm more likely to seek to leave the profession altogether as a result of what's happened. Um, during lockdown. So we've got a crisis. The question is, if life gets better for this existing set of head teachers, will they be able to get over it? And will they be able to feel differently? 
because the intensity of feelings of burnout and anxiety, they are things that can go away and they can go away, frankly, if head teachers are given a break. Um, but then we've got the secondary issue, which is, well, if these, this generation of head teachers has been burned by, by what's happened to them, what happens to other teachers and are they prepared to step up to the job? And our data from Teacher Tap says that they are no less likely to want to step up to the job than they have been in the past. So we've asked this question lots of times in the past. Would you like to be a head teacher yourself one day? And at any point in time, about 30% um, of teachers, almost a third, will say to us, yes, I'd definitely like to be a head teacher or yes, I'd maybe like to be a head teacher. And the response to that question hasn't been any different during lockdown. And I think one of the reasons for that is back to this issue of when schools are shut one of the things that's made life so difficult for her teachers has been this isolation that they are often in school actually and in school without their teaching peers around them having to battle with very very stressful issues and maybe other teachers really don't appreciate how bad things have been um, for head teachers during lockdown because, of course, you know, the flip side, which we know about, is at least in the state sector, teachers who don't have promotion, so classroom teachers, report that they've worked much shorter hours during lockdown. And they've had relatively low levels, or in fact, far lower than normal levels of work-related anxiety, because they're not in the classroom every day. So this contrast between the experience of the heads and the experience of the rest of the teaching board body um, has really become so polarised during lockdown and it really is a worry what happens to school leadership in the near future. Com completely. I, I think it is really interesting, as you say, that those head teachers are having to grapple with so many of those things almost out of sight of the the rest of the the staff and and they're the ones who the onus is on them to sort of communicate decisions and policy changes yeah. to everybody else and obviously something that that we see a lot through our work at the key and particularly our primary school leaders group is the constant anxiety about about political change science things that that go on completely outside of the the environment of the school and and the area that that person is used to to, to, to managing that that are now lumped onto an already very crowded desk as well um and 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 as you say no no break in in sight potentially as um speculation begins about about a summer of catch-up or all these kinds of terms are banded around um really really challenging um experience to date and potentially more more coming down the road for head teachers very yeah, very absolutely. worrying and it's not just about what may or may not happen around summer catch-up. I mean, even if that is taken mm. entirely away from them. I mean, especially for secondary heads at the moment, um, most of them haven't been able to write a timetable and get that sorted out because they don't know yet who's going to be able to come back. But also, if they come back, they don't know whether they're going to be able to have children walking around the school or not. Mm. And that has massive implications for a school. Like, are you organising a year eight curriculum where for example you can have ability setting where children are with different kids depending on what subject that you're doing or are we going to have to run very strict form classes where all that happens to children is that they walk in in the morning they sit in a single classroom and then they leave again mm. and then you know it's all 
we, we can't resolve these things until probably later on, unfortunately, much as I'd like the government to just come out and say this is how it's going to be, it probably won't be August until we get final decisions. So, I mean, my, my vision at the moment is that is that heads will be spending August trying to sort out how on earth, like in a practical sense, we, mm. we, we run our schools. Exactly so. And... Teacher Tap are great friends of the the podcast, and we we usually have a, a rundown of your recent findings. We've mentioned um, a few of them as we've been going through, and as as I mentioned, you've been doing some incredibly useful work over the lockdown period. So maybe you could tell us um, a little bit about maybe some of the ways in which your your stats have actually been feeding in to 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 government and others to affect some change. Sure. I mean, when we started TeachTap, which was actually back in 2017 now, we always like talked about wanting to be able to talk about what's normal in schools. And we felt that often in the policy narrative, you know, policymakers or journalists would make all kinds of claims about the way schools were. And we'd think, well, but do we know that? Do we know that's true? And so we'd ask lots and lots of mundane questions about things like, you know, do you have your own mug in the staff room and so on? And then suddenly we find ourselves living through these incredibly abnormal times where there's been huge diversity in practice and in choices that schools have made because we're all working on the hoof. And it's been quite tough for us, actually, because we've also had to work on the hoof. And normally we would plan our programme of questions that we wanted and the themes we were interested in. And now we just have to work from day to day, desperately trying to write questions and find out like all the possible responses we're likely to get and need to have on the questions um, and, and just move very fast. But it has meant that we've quickly, because we publish results from questions within 24 hours of question opening, we've quickly become the only route to find out how schools and teachers are responding to policy announcements or events as they happen on the day. And we're able to do that at scale because we have now, I think, um, around 9,000 teachers a day answering. If you want to know what's going on in maths departments or with science teachers, we can do all of that too because we have the scale to do it. And things certainly moved really quickly during lockdown. I mean, one week we were fretting about whether to run a school trip or a parents' evening or how to do it, should you shake a parent's hand, for example. And then the next week, you'll have that week before closure where there was kind of the collapse of functioning schools. Mm. There's gradually staff and pupils started staying home. Yeah. And, and you had head teachers just having to make decisions to turn away year groups at a time because they couldn't keep them safe. And then by the end of that week, lockdown happened. Um, and we've learned a lot during that um uh, period. I mean, some of the big differences we've seen um, that we've talked about a lot are these differences in what happened in the private sector compared to the state sector. And I think at the point of lockdown, you know, the private sector, the financial imperative to find a way to keep going and to be able to justify fees um, being paid was incredibly strong. That's why you saw, for example, um, teaching in years 11 and 13 kept going in the private sector. Um, it, when it, they stopped entirely very quickly as soon as it was announced the exams weren't happening in the state sector but they were also able to keep going in the private sector i think they had smaller class sizes most families had laptops they had fewer disruptive kids and so on so we just saw this kind of enormous divergence in what happened across these two sectors um, which had big, big implications i think for the kind of support that families were getting at home which has become a source of kind of a lot of controversy of has it been okay or not? 
Um, and it's led to some kind of huge inequalities in um, who's doing work at home and who isn't. And some of these have been the things that have been talked about a lot in the press. So our, our work has been used extensively by policymakers, by journalists. We hear MPs quoting our statistics all the time. I think of, I, we heard Amanda Spielman quoting back our statistics at, at uh, Robert Halfern at a select committee arguing about what was actually going on. And in the early days, it was quantifying lots of kind of practical issues, you know, the debates around lack of technology and broadband. But we were able to, I think, show that the technology and broadband issues, whilst, you know, important and fixable, um, although they weren't fixed in the end, they could have potentially been mm. fixed, weren't the whole story. We're really trying to understand, like, why are these mass there are these massively um, large inequalities in, in who's doing work at home? And we could quickly see that um, teachers who were teaching in schools in more disadvantaged settings were reporting much higher proportions of children who they felt had done absolutely no work, for example, last week, um, you know, so some, well over a third of um, teachers who teach in the most deprived primary schools felt that, that um, most of their children were doing no work last week, um, and even an even larger proportion actually in secondary, secondary schools in deprived areas. And that contrasted with both affluent state schools, where largely they were reporting that most children were doing something, and private schools where almost universally they were reporting most children were doing something. So really thinking about asking teachers what were the reasons for these and how can we fix them and the dilemmas that ultimately if you've got a family where teachers tell us there's limited or no parental support for learning, where the, where the kids themselves have kind of long-standing pretty poor attitudes to schoolwork even when they were at school where they lack any kind of independent study skills you know the technology isn't going to fix the problem mm. so a big part of the debate during lockdown has been around is there anything we can do about that or do we just have to accept that some learning is not going to take place in some families and and that's that and then you know as we think about what's happening now um, we're starting to think, of, as we talk today, we're, I think, in week two of primary schools gradually drifting back. We were able to report and get accurate figures on how many primary schools were going back in each region. And we were able to report them about a week before DfE could get the official data out. We could also report something else, which was the huge inequalities in who has reopened. Um, so we were able to show um, that schools with higher free school meal proportions were less likely to reopen. And in part, that was regionally driven. But even within regions, um, the regions that had higher free school, um, the region, the schools within a region with higher free school meal proportions seemed to be less likely to open quickly. And then we could report within schools that have reopened, who has good return rates of kids showing up to school. And unfortunately, again, it's the schools in the affluent areas that have got the great return rates of getting kids back into school. So even re with reopening happening, there's real concerns about this you know, so-called attainment gap and whether it's still widening. And I suppose now we're also, we're, we're just turning our heads to what's happening in secondary schools. So we're trying to ask questions to figure out what the practicalities are of how year 10 and 12 are going to return. And that's really complicated in terms of thinking through how you get them in, how long they are in, what kinds of subjects they're studying, what curriculums they're studying, what you're doing about the students still at home, how are you dealing with health and safety issues? 
So for us at the moment, this is our you know real focus, and it's really tough to ask questions actually about secondary school return because there are there appear to be thousands of different models of reopening mm. up to to secondary schools. And it must be challenging sometimes to 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 schedule the question to ask it at a time when enough people know or have a clue about what they're yes. doing to to respond rather than just saying don't know haven't haven't got there yet kind of thing yeah absolutely so we do try to get that right and sometimes you just really want to know I mean I remember earlier this week we asked some questions about school uniform and they were just and, and whether you're making school uniform adjustments and it was just too early to ask and there were too many um teachers who said I don't know but I, also I'm aware that my own boy returned to school um, as early as was possible so as we're talking now on the 12th that was a, almost two weeks ago now and they didn't adapt their uniform at all on day one but it took about a week in before they realized that actually the children need to be in trainers every day and on PE day they just need to wear their PE kit all day mm. and you know so the, the the adaptions have had to happen after the schools have reopened as as the primaries gradually realize how you run a school with young children who you can't help dress yeah. so you yeah, have to yeah. have them in appropriate kind of clothing for going outside and running about exactly and are there any, I mean, we've obviously talked a little bit about the kind of future re- recruitment uh, issues, but are there any other kind of emerging trends for change as 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 kind of lockdown wears off that, that, that you're, you're noticing? I mean, apart from these inequalities, I'm not, mm. I'm not really sure what else. I mean, I think uh, one of, so I think for me, one of the difficulties of running teacher tap during lockdown has been, and I think it's still true now, is is that we've been really interested in what's going on with learning and teachers mm. don't really know the answer to these questions. So we're often asking teachers what their perceptions are of things that I'm not really convinced that they know a great deal about. Um, we talk, we always talk in education about how learning isn't visible and teachers don't really know what's going on in a child's brain. And well, that's true in the classroom. It's even more true now that they genuinely don't know. So when we ask these questions about what you feel that your kids you normally teach, you know, could be doing, um, I wish we knew the real answers to what was happening. And I think I'm still interested in um, whether the fact that they don't really have good feedback loops when teachers are teaching remotely and where there's no live interaction taking place mm-hmm. because there largely hasn't been in the state sector, um, whether that's an explanation for why teaching practice and the way that we've delivered remote learning hasn't changed a great deal from the start of March or the end of March. And that's something that really surprised me. We've asked all these questions um, on Teacher Tap mm-hmm. about what you're doing what platforms are you using with your students what types of things are you doing with your students what types of resources you're using and i'd be kind of amazed by how throughout this period there hasn't been a lot of change in the responses that largely whatever the school was doing at the end of march is pretty much what the school is still doing now for the students who are still at home and part of me just wonders whether that is because they don't have any kind of mm. feedback loop taking place. So they're not really able to adapt their practice. And I suppose as a parent who's kind of on, on the other side of it, who's receiving, you know, the, the 
the instructions of what to do and also just doing my own thing with my kids I'm aware of how radically we've changed the way we work at home since the end Mm. of March but that's because I've got a really tight clear feedback loop because I've got these you know these two children and I get really good feedback on on what is possible and 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 what we should be doing at home to kind of survive and learn something ideally and and coming on to that as we as we look at potentially uh you know more more homeschooling to come your your brilliant blog on the parental load of of home learning can you tell listeners a little bit more about how you kind of came up with that that theory and any suggestions about what schools can do to ensure that pupils and parents uh can survive a bit more homeschooling yeah sure i mean i suppose you know like everybody who's a parent i spend a lot of time during lockdown chatting to parents all over the country who are my friends and just kind of trying to make sense of the stress and frustration that they're experiencing with homeschooling and just thinking about well what's causing this and what can we do about it and it's clear that um, families are in really um, different circumstances to each other really unique circumstances but there's one thing that all of us were sharing and that's that we all have massively limited time because we're trying to do jobs at the same time often, because we've got multiple children and we're being given different schooling resources for each of them. And if they're primary children, they don't work independently. So we have to supervise each one. Also just trying to look after our houses, uh, which in itself is a big job. Um, and, And I thought, well, is what we're doing when we're doing this thing called home learning actually focused on helping our kids learn or is it doing something else? And so I ended up writing this blog post about parental load theory, which was kind of, you know, the name is really, it's not a serious theory. And it was a little bit tongue in cheek in a response to something that I think educators will know, which is cognitive load theory. This idea that we should be optimising our resources and instructional design within the classroom when we're working and to take account of students' limited working memory capacity and trying to reduce the load that we place on them which can impede their ability to process new information um, and so on but parental load theory was really starting from the capacity constraint that i perceived that there was which was the parents time and we're thinking about how do we design instruction and resources that can support parents and i said well this is our difficulty when we think about parental time and parental load Um, There's different things we're being asked to do. Some of them are um, intrinsic parental loads, things that are intrinsic to the task of the adult-child interactions that should ideally take place for learning to be supported. Particularly in young children, we're thinking about the conversational role we take in supported learning, questioning, prompting, support for inquiry. All of these things are really important in helping students elaborate ideas, develop understanding and fluency and so on, and concepts of ideas. But I said, well, that's one thing that we're doing, and it's taking our time. But we've got these other things that I call extraneous parental loads. And I say, well, they're the things that are essential to task completion, but they're not necessarily required for the learning to take place. And the first is we have this parental role in enforcing engagement by encouraging the student to start the activity and then to persist on it. Um, And then the administrative role that we have in interpreting instructions, correcting resource errors, printing worksheets, retyping in complex login details every day, finding essential resources and so on. 
And I just said, look, you know, my perception, and I have friends in many state schools across the country, state primary schools, is that the tasks that they're getting are not bad when it comes to um, trying to help us um, with engagement and limit the amount of enforcement of engagement that we need. They seem like reasonably interested activities. The kids aren't against doing them, so that's all fine. But they perform terribly poorly on administrative load. So we're getting these instructions that are coming by email or websites that are quite unclear to parents who then use our WhatsApp groups to help each other work out what on earth we're supposed to be doing. We've got, we're using worksheets that were designed for the classroom that don't normally have instructions that actually tell you what to do if you're, if you're a parent. Mm. We're having to use these websites that um, require passwords that are held somewhere else entirely, you know, I don't know where in some book that a child has or something. Um, but the passwords aren't child friendly. So even if your child's nine or 10, they can't type them in themselves. Um, tasks requiring things other than just the basic pen and paper. But then not only that, we've got this dilemma that a lot of the tasks that schools were sending home were pretty burdensome in terms of the parental load that's intrinsic to the learning. And so whilst they were kind of interesting and educationally valuable, it was just not possible for primary children to do them without a parent sitting next to them. You just can't do extended writing, exploring complex ideas, taking inquiry approaches to things, investigating something, pursuing creative ideas. None of these things sound great, and that's because they are great. You know, they're active learning approaches, but they're only possible if you've got a parent who's got the time to do these things. And so we really need to be very careful about the extent to which we are setting these pieces of work well certainly on the blog post i i wrote you know some of my reflections on the things that do seem to work well at home and the things that don't seem to do work well at home and perhaps how we should be adapting what we ask parents to do yes and we'll um we'll put a link uh, to the blog there in the in the notes from these podcasts and i think what's what's interesting about that is um, you know that affects children at both ends of the the spectrum of, of of disadvantage because you could you know be be time poor or just may find doing some of those things more accessible or all or all different ways in which um, mm. you know it's it, it lots of different groups of, of of children would potentially be affected by by that and anything else you'd like to uh, share with our listeners in closing. I guess, of course, since I helped to run TeacherTap, I should really just encourage listeners to um, download TeacherTap to get answering some of our questions. And we also give them articles and blog posts to read, which we curate every day. Um, And really, one of the reasons why people learn the app is that they just want to know what's normal. And although things at the moment are very abnormal, there is and there remains a huge diversity of practice that's going on inside this profession that sometimes isn't visible to individuals who work in schools. So that's our motivation for asking the questions that we do. Indeed, and we'll also have details of of how to sign up in the notes as well. Well, thank you so much, Becky, for talking to us today. And thank you very much for listening. Key Voices is produced by The Key, giving education leaders the knowledge to act. Please tell us what you think of the podcast. Rate, review and subscribe or email me at caroline.doherty at thekeysupport.com with your thoughts and suggestions.